Welcome to Out of the Ether, Episode 9, and I am Tim Brick, and still your host for this podcast. This week is Part 3, and the final part of my conversation with Charlie Feldman. Charlie was so gracious. Uh, We had an hour scheduled originally for the interview, and we talked for two and a half hours. Uh, Basically talked to his earbuds died. And uh, decided at that time that we would we would schedule another another session down the road. Uh, I know I have a lot more questions for Charlie, and again to anyone listening that has questions for him as well. Tim dot out of the ether at gmail dot com. Please feel free to email me any questions you have for Charlie, and I'll make sure they get asked the next time I have an opportunity to talk with them. But this week, uh, Charlie was gracious enough to share another of his songs with us. This one's a demo recording, uh, which I always find interesting to hear early versions of songs. My hope is by the next time we talk, you'll have a final version. We can kind of A-B the two, see what changes uh, get made from the from the demo to the final. Um, also, this uh, episode, Charlie talks about many of the people that he's worked with over his 40-plus years in the music industry. So we will be right back with part three of our conversation with Charlie Feldman. Is there any specific advice you'd give to songwriters? Because a lot of the people that do listen to this podcast, I know, are songwriters, but have not achieved you know high levels of success. A lot of them still have day jobs, but they would like to get rid of. Um, so what would you say to somebody who's really trying to cut I mean, their there's, there's a, a maybe a longer list of things that I then I should offer, but the first thing for everybody to remember is we must not forget our humility. Hmm. And I, I heard that from a, an incredibly special person, and it was the great Quincy Jones. Oh, wow. And Quincy Jones... Uh, you know, he was in Seattle and met Ray Charles when he was probably 11 years old. I mean, they they went way back. But Quincy Jones is the man that helped Michael Jackson live his vision and his dream by making those great albums with Michael Jackson. But he's worked with so many great people as, an, as a musician and as an arranger and as a producer. And he's a good businessman. And when he one night, I think it was during a time when there are a lot of East Coast, West Coast um, violent interactions among the, the hip hop rap yeah. community. He said, you know, we must not forget our humility. And, and the reason why I'm offering that up now, if there are any aspiring songwriters, is because nobody owes us anything. Yeah. You know, we have to remember that, that. We do this because it's in our DNA. You know, I, I, I may never have another song heard by anybody. I'm doing it because it's, it's part of my, my makeup. Yeah. I, I love to paint. I love to draw. And uh, I share it when I think it's worthy of, of, of sharing. But nobody owes me anything. And, and, and that's a good thing to remember. But, but the other th- elements that I would say is, uh, and I wasn't always as confident about what I write as I am now. It's taken me years. But those who have a lot of confidence but are humble, you can be confident with humility. Confidence is a key 
factor, working hard. We've already talked about that. Yeah. Putting yourself out there is the way luck happens. You make your luck. Luck doesn't just come find you. You find luck by making it happen and, and working at it. And um, believe in yourself and keep keep your eyes and ears open. Yeah. Those are a lot of the elements, I think. I may be leaving out some things, but that's how I see it. Well, I think you're absolutely right, because to me, the, the music business is a business like any other one. I know where I've been very successful in business is, is building a network and building relationships with people, and then one leads to another, uh, and not having expectations uh, other than expectations on myself to keep moving forward, you know, but beyond that, where that path leads me. Um, so far, uh, knock, knock on wood here, you know, it's, been, it's led me to really great places. We've that makes a lot of sense, and I, I totally agree with you. Being open and, and treating people fairly and treating people with respect, and you never know where it's going to happen, yep. but it's going to happen out there somewhere, and you got that's why I say you got to put yourself yep. out there. I mean, some things happened to me in my life that were some of the greatest things in my career that, that I never envisioned were going to happen, like, working on a few movies and becoming, I don't want to be bold and say we're close friends, but we through the years have had great communication and uh, we still communicate and I respect him and think the world of him. And, and he's getting on in years now, but Robert Duvall. Oh yeah. And uh, we, you know, I've met some other great actors through him. So I mean, I met Tom Cruise through Robert Duvall. We're not friends. Yeah. He would remember if I if I saw Tom Cruise, I'd say I was with Duvall the night that Waylon and Johnny got up and and sang at the cast party for Days of Thunder, you know. <laughs> and uh, I just met this past year. I met Ed Harris through Robert Duvall. Oh, and he's I love another him. Yeah. real talented guy. And and those things just happened because I was out there. I put myself out there. Well, I, I'm going to guess, since you said Robert Duvall, we were talking music, Tender Mercies, was that one of the movies you worked with him on? Because that, That's the a lot first of music movie that yeah. I ever was around, and I ended up selecting a lot of the songs, including his special song in the movie, <clears throat> and uh, uh, selecting another song that was in the movie that was a finalist for the Academy Award Best Song of the Year called Over You, written by two great writers, Austin Roberts and Bobby Hart. And uh, Austin had some hits as a singer. He had some okay. big pop hits. He had a song called Rocky that he sang and another song called Something's Wrong With Me. And um, Bobby Hart was a partner of Tommy Boyce and they wrote and produced all the Monkees hits. Bobby also wrote some hits for some other artists. I think he wrote, uh, I think it was called either Hurt So Bad or Going Out of My Head for a group called Little Anthony and the Imperials. And then Linda Ronstadt covered it. And, uh, you know, great writers. But, yeah, that Tender Mercies, I was on location for a month. Uh, the director, Bruce Beresford, who's fantastic to me, he wanted me to make sure all the filmed music scenes looked accurate because they were filmed to playback, meaning okay. the songs were pre-recorded and Duval and Betty Buckley and the other singers pantomimed while the song was being played while they were shooting the scene, the visual of the scene. Well, you, and you've talked about a number of different songwriters. Who are some of your favorite songwriters? 
Um, Carol King, Jerry Goffin. I'm very close to uh, two of the Motown's greatest writers. Um, I'm real close with Brian Holland of Holland, Dozier Holland, but his brother Eddie, we're, we're good buddies also. But Brian and I talk off and on a lot, and they were the guys that wrote and produced all the Supremes hits, all the Four Tops hits, with another great writer who's a sweetheart of a guy that I know well, Lamont Dozier. I love them. I love Carol King. Jerry Goffin is deceased. Um, another really talented writer I learned a lot passed away is a guy named Tony Joe White. And he wrote some big songs, and he was a true artist. He never compromised his art, which i that's what I learned from him. He wrote a beautiful song called Rainy Night in Georgia. Oh, yeah, I know that song. Yeah. And he wrote... Um, Poke Salad Annie, which he had a hit with. Okay. And then he wrote some hits. He wrote some big songs for Tina Turner. He wrote a song called Steamy Windows. And he wrote a song called Undercover Agent for the Blues. (laughs) And uh, he wrote a beautiful song called Out of the Rain, which Aretha cut. A lot of people cut it. But unfortunately, we lost him over a year ago. He was a beautiful guy. And now there's a song out called Boot Money. His son, Jody, has collaborated with a real talented guy named Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. Okay. And Dan and he produced some an album on some of some previously unreleased, unfinished songs of Tony Joe's. And Dan, who's a stellar guitar player and a great musician, they went out and they just released a single from this new album. It's called Boot Money. You got to check it out. It's Okay. It's on. Uh, is, is, it's uh, up there on Spotify. iTunes or Spotify. Okay, but it's you know, boot b o o t like a boot. You boot, wear money. boot money. You know the idea of the song is, hey, I I work hard for a living and I I make I get some money and I I I spend some of it, but I put some of it away. I put it down in my boot. I got <laughs> boot money. <laughs> I love that. Now, what, what Tony a, Joe was a real character. What about? Um, and I think I read this. By the way. <laughs> Because you're you're very humble individual, so you're not going to say it. So I'm going to say it for you. Uh, when I was Googling, uh, as I do with any time I have a guest, I try and go in and get as much background information, try and find tidbits that I can. When you retired from BMI, not only is that retirement announcement in every single publication that has anything to do even remotely with the music industry, I found it in major publications, and I think pretty much all over the world. Matter of fact, I think I went four pages through Google. Well, every single page was about 20 entries of some different publication with your, your retirement announcement. So, um, Wow, I didn't realize that. Not actually. only are you very well known, but obviously very well respected in the music industry. But what I was going to say, I think it was in, in one of those that I, I saw Hall & Oates listed as, as artists that you've Oh, God, I, I should have mentioned They're some of my Hall all-time favorite songwriters. Love and, them. And, you know, I, I have an, a really, really nice relationship with John. Daryl's more aloof to me, but I've had some nice moments in his presence. And they are collaborative. And, and uh, one of my favorite Hall & Oates songs She's gone, mm-hmm. and Daryl is. I mean, they're both really great singers. They're just different. They yeah. have different qualities. Daryl's vocals on that are really phenomenal. But that 
that nugget of that song came from John, as did Maneater. Daryl, you know, sings the lead on Maneater, but yeah. John, that was one of his expressions, and uh, you know, he can he can sing it and play it almost in a reggae feel, but you know, the 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 hit is is Daryl all the way. But you know, Sarah Smile. I can remember being in Nashville in 1975. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment, funky little apartment in an eight-unit complex on Sharondale Road, and I, you know, I wasn't doing that well financially. But I had a I had a turntable, uh -huh. and I had a lot of vinyl, and I made this makeshift vinyl record rack out of plywood, one by four wood yeah. with some cinder blocks. So it was in the corner of my living room. <laughs> and that's where I put, you know, I had it measured where the album would fit in. And I had all my albums there and I had my, but I had that, that gray album where Hall and Oates had on eye makeup and it had, I can't remember the name of the album, but I remember Sarah's smile vividly and you know, it was after Abandoned Luncheonette. That's the one that had She's Gone. Yeah. But, the, but you know, this album had Sarah Smile, and the soulful vocal of Daryl Hall was just amazing. John is an excellent guitar player. And Daryl's a... You know that song, uh, uh, You Make My Dreams Come yeah. True? Oh, yeah. The, the, the cadence of that, the tempo and the guitar lick i think daryl can play that very well too mm -hmm. and um he may have played the piano on it yeah well what, my favorite song of theirs is probably not one of their biggest hits but don't hold back your love um i love the mm -hmm. i love the opening guitars you know just really bouncing in that song and then, i love i can't go for that yeah i love that song that's too. a really great yeah. song and uh but she's gone sarah smile man eater i can't go for that you make my dreams. I mean, they've had about eleven or twelve huge, huge songs, which is a that is a a real accomplishment for any songwriter. And they've had so many more special songs that other people like that I don't even know about. But yeah, I'm glad you brought them up because I remember going and, and visiting them way back uh, when I could fit in that suit that I could probably fit on one leg now you know, it was many years ago but um well yeah, I, I have a whole closet full of those since COVID hit yeah so. I, I also you know she didn't start out as a songwriter but she's ended up writing a lot but I have a lot of respect for Rihanna she came to my office in 2005 when she before she ever had a record out and she was introduced to me by these two guys that are just great guys and great producers Evan Rogers and Carl Sturkin, and they have a, their own studio in Westchester County, New okay. York. And um, Evan is married to a Baden woman, and they used to go visit her family. And they were down there probably in in two thousand three or four. I don't know what year it was, but they started hearing about this girl that was winning all these local talent contests, and it was Rihanna. Oh, wow. And Evan met Rihanna, and they brought her back to America and developed her and found Ponda Replay, which was written by uh, this woman named Majesty. And one other, I think there, were t there was one other writer on it, and that was her blowout first hit. And then, you know, she went on to have Umbrella, Umbrella and yeah. 
Rihanna's, she's a force and a, a really, I've been around her through the years off and on and I've always respected her as a person. You know, I haven't seen her recently, but she, she was really a nice person. What about Niles Rogers? Unbelievable guy. Yeah. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to assume I love now doing what you did. You almost couldn't avoid him because he plays with so many people. <laughs> he's involved in so many projects. He's 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 a very high level, intelligent, bright, energetic, brilliant guy with great musical skills yeah. and and talent. And um, he's just a very focused guy. You know. He's not only written some great, great songs, but he's also produced some legendary uh, culture-shaking songs, you know, like producing uh, Like a Virgin or working with David Bowie and, and just creating amazing music. And, you know, he's made a lifetime off of this unique percussive guitar. Yeah. And... You know, even Get Lucky with Pharrell and, and Daft Punk. Mm -hmm. You know, what a great record that is. Great song. Yeah. He's no. got great instincts, you know. Yeah. This is why I put my writing on the back burner because I've been so fortunate to have been able to be around and meet so many of these incredible people. And, you know, I've been around a lot of great talent that nobody knows who they are, too. I'll tell you right now, I'm so excited. There's a young man that I met on the subway platform when he was busking the 2nd Avenue Lafayette subway line. And I heard this guy, and I turned around and looked at him. He was very charismatic, and he was playing, and the tone of his voice. And I also noticed that some beautiful young women were standing there watching mm -hmm. him which told me a lot yeah. about his charisma and about his yeah. alluring talents. And uh, I went up and met him and, you know, I just said, God, I'd love to have you come by and let me introduce you to the, the creative team at BMI. It turned out he was not with BMI. He was with somebody else, but I didn't care. Yeah. And, and then he went away for three or four years. And then all of a sudden he came back a year ago and it turns out that he's got another person in his life that's a great musician and engineer and producer. And they took these songs and they went in the studio and they put some a few high-level musicians like Tony Garnier, who's Bob Dylan's bass player uh -huh. and has played on a lot of his records, a great violinist named Scarlett Rivera. And another incredible record maker named Jake Sinclair, who's a great musician who works with Weezer. And, and they collaborated and they put together this album. And I got to hear the album yesterday and this morning. He's going to be an important artist okay. once the world discovers him. His name is Robert Leslie. Okay. He was born in New York, but he grew up in London and Amsterdam. But he lives in Brooklyn, and he he played yesterday. He went over to uh, Washington Square Park, and he's he's dri you know he's being who he is. He has that healthy obsession, I call it. Yeah, he reminds me a lot. If you remember the artist Donovan, yeah, I did. his voice his voice is somewhere between Donovan 
and Robin Gibb of the Gibb Brothers. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, his voice is amazing. I sent a very rough recording to my buddy, Tony Visconti. I don't know if you know that name. No. But Tony Visconti's one of the greatest music makers out there. He's produced a lot of David Bowie's albums. He produced um, Nights in White Satin. Oh, sure. Yeah. Tony Visconti produced some Moody Blues. Okay. And um, he's produced a lot of other people. But I played this guy to Tony, and he wrote me back. He said, Charlie, I thought I was just going to get another Brooklyn-sounding. He said, this guy's amazing. That's you know, high it praise. was great to get validation from Tony. Oh, yeah. No, but, that's, but Perry Margaleff. Yeah. Perry Margaleff is a wonderful music man, and he has really stood by this guy, Robert Leslie, and has helped him a lot and mentored him and has made a beautiful album. You know, it's a ways away from being out on the market, but it'll be out there probably this year. Okay. And I'm excited about, you know, it's all about music. I'm very passionate about music. Yeah. Well, that, as you can tell. No. <laughs> yeah, if somebody hasn't figured that out by now, that they really haven't been listening. They've been multitasking. <laughs> no, thanks for sharing that and, and the name. And I'm definitely going to make a note and, and keep it on my radar and keep looking for it. He's He's got a few other things out on the platforms, on the digital platforms. Okay. But but nothing. This is this is just, you know, levels above sonically everything he's done, in now, my opinion. Now, you mentioned uh, I heard the name Gibbs. Did you work with the Bee Gees? I met the Bee Gees once, all three brothers, and I, I, I took a picture with them. I presented them with something in 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 Times Square on broad. There was something going on. And it was merely because I was in town and the president of our company wasn't in town. And I was asked to go down and present this to them. I can't remember what, it's been a while, obviously, because yeah. two of the brothers are gone now. But I did meet them, but I didn't have any real interaction with them. I just presented them this. I took a picture and I said hello to them. And, you know, they were lovely guys. But... Their documentary is so great. Yeah, well, I don't know if you've seen I, it. I recently watched that on HBO, and, and I think, if I remember right from the documentary, they have 29 number one hits. I it's mean, it possible. That sounds number. about right. Yeah. It sounds about right because they had hits in the 60s, yeah. 70s, 80s, 90s, and I don't know about the 2000s, but, but you know, they had a lot of hits in the 60s. I mean... And, and then they had uh, Massachusetts, which is Robin's voice, uh -huh. which sounds, a, Robert Leslie has a, a tonal quality that is reminiscent of, of Robin Gibbs' beautiful vocal on Massachusetts, when the lights go down in Massachusetts. Um, they're, they, they're, they're, they were amazing, brilliant. I, I saw them in Birmingham while I was still living in Nashville. So it had to be in, I think, around 1979 or 80. and Was that Saturday Night Fever was out then? Would that have been the, the disco craze in 79? Probably, right? It was probably right around then. And I just remember how handsome Barry Gibb was. Oh, yeah. And he came out for the encore with a towel around his neck, shirtless, beautiful, you know, shoulder hair. Yeah, hair. yeah. And and but not an arrogant guy at all, just just confident. And uh -huh. 
I, I remember going to see them then. It was very special, very special. Yeah, no, I w- I've always been a fan of the Bee Gees. Um, the great Arif Martin. Okay. He produced Nights on Broadway, among other hits, but Arif was in the documentary. And when I saw that, I, I, I had to post a wonderful picture that Janice and I took with Arif and his wife, Latif. They were from Turkey, uh-huh. just like Ahmet Erdogan. That was the connection. Ahmet was, and Nesui, his brother, were from Turkey. And they came to Washington because their father was a diplomat, a, a Turkish diplomat. Then later, a reef came over. And I think there's a connection. I think a reef and, and uh, Quincy Jones, there's a connection there. I'm not sure if Quincy sponsored a reef in some way to, because a reef was a brilliant, he passed away, but he was a brilliant arranger not only producer, but arranger. I think he arranged the strings on Aretha Franklin's brilliant record, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Yeah. And those strings and horns, you know, the French horn. Yeah. Aretha arranged a lot of these records. And anyway, he produced Nights on Broadway. Well, Charlie, thank you very much. I mean, we've been talking for almost two hours. Like I said earlier, we could probably talk for eight, 10, 12 hours. Uh, is there anything that we didn't hit on that you'd like to talk about? I think we covered a lot. I mean, I'm I'm fine if you have some more questions that you didn't get answered that you'd like to ask me, but I don't want to be overbearing to you. <laughs> I, well, actually, I, d- but, I do have a question for you. So I think I read somewhere, uh, your first band, you were in ninth grade. Do you remember the name of that band? It was called The Church Keys. I'm and <laughs> I, I sort of muscled my way. That band was in existence, and I started hanging out with them. And I muscled my way into being a lead singer. And then there was this other guy that was vying for the same job. But somehow I ended up getting the job to be in the band. And then in the 10th grade, we changed the name of the band to an even worse name called <laughs> The Baseman, like The Baseman Amp. Yep. And it really had nothing to do with singing bass or anything. But that... that band we struggled in our sophomore year in high school but by our junior year in high school we were strictly a cover band nobody wrote songs uh it was later while i was with the band that i started getting interest interested in trying to make up songs but in our junior year we really clicked and we got we got bookings all over the southeast we were you know i was 16 and 17 years old We were playing at Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Alabama, Auburn, Florida State, University of Georgia, Georgia Tech, and Furman. Wow. So we were in Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi. But you were still in high school when you were touring like that? Wow. Yeah. And and, um, I ended up being the only one that went into music as a livelihood. The other guys, in their own rights, have been very successful. Um, Luckily, most, I think only one person is deceased, and he ended up being a professor at a music school. He was a keyboard player. But um, we drove around, and we carried a U-Haul trailer to some of these gigs. Okay. Our junior and senior year, we worked every weekend, 
and I, I looked at inflation calculator. <laughs> I didn't realize how much money we, we were able to <laughs> stow away as kids. Yeah. You know, if you made $75 a piece two nights, if you look up $150 in 1963, it's, it's good money. Yeah. Well, and being in high school too, so you didn't have any overhead. Yeah, yeah. Minimal. Yeah. Was, yeah, if we made 200 bucks a weekend per person, we were killing it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you know, it's kind of sad, Charlie. Um, fast forward to 2020. Well, well let's go back. So, so the last band I was playing in where we were playing out was about a decade ago. So 2010. Uh, what was the name of the band? Uh, that band was called Crooked Grin. And we were an all-original band. I can tell you a bunch of funny stories about that band. But um, we go out. Where for, were you based? Where were you at that time? Uh, Arizona. So we were here in Arizona. Oh, okay. We got we okay. had a lot of great gigs. I got to open for Eddie Money, uh, Billy Damn. Squire. I knew Eddie. Yeah. Eddie was a sweetheart. You know what? He he was fantastic. So after our set, that was a Christmas show, and it was an acoustic show. And uh, we played that show. And afterwards, uh, tar player and our lead singer, they were going back down to the green room uh, to pick up their guitars. And uh, Eddie saw him, and he said, hey, you guys come in here. And so they went in, they got to hang out with him for about 30 minutes. And he said, I, you know, I just got to tell you guys, I didn't appreciate you trying to blow me off stage like that. <laughs> but <laughs> they had a wonderful conversation. And then um, when I was really young, Billy Squire uh, was like an idol of mine and uh, got to meet him. Uh, we'll see Everclear, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Um, so they oh, those are all great. Man. Um, Paul Rogers. Uh, you talk about legends. Uh, we got to open for him. Uh, now he, I didn't, I didn't well, get to meet. Well, Paul. Let me, let me just give you a sidebar. This guy, Robert Leslie, whose new album is co-produced with Perry Margulif. Uh -huh. Perry has produced and worked very closely with Paul Rogers. He's uh, produced numerous albums and engineered with, with uh, uh, Paul Rogers. He's amazing. Anyway, go ahead. I'm well, sorry. I well, no, that's okay. No, I was going to say, of, of all the different uh, acts we've opened for, we always got to meet everybody, you know, because you're usually down. You're, you're back there. We, they have us in a crappy little green room. <laughs> and, you know, of course, the star gets, gets the suite, which is perfectly understandable and acceptable. Uh, Paul Rogers, I don't know where they had him sequestered. Uh, I never got within 100 feet of him. <laughs> I mean, he's rock royalty. That what a voice. You know, what, what I was going to say, though, when I started bringing up playing in a band, so you're talking in the 60s, you guys are making uh, 100 bucks a piece, or, or the band would make 200 bucks, or each guy would No, make no, we were making, I was making 150 or 200 bucks a weekend per me. You were, yeah. Yeah, well, we were getting paid pretty well. So uh, you fast forward to 2010, and there's a four-piece band, and we'd have to fight like heck to get 400 bucks. When we when we started getting hot, we were making 350 a a band. The mm -hmm. band was making three fifty a Friday night, three fifty a Saturday night. So that would translate to hundred and twenty five per person, something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, we were making over a hundred bucks a piece when I was a sophomore, and then we graduated by our junior year. I think we could be making four to six hundred dollars a night for yeah. the band, and I just. I tell people if I only knew then what I know now, oh my God, yeah, I would have had so much more fun with the girls. <laughs> it was so much fun, you know. Well, we see, had a lot of fun. Here's the difference, Charlie. You were a lead singer, so you could have fun with the girls. I'm a bass player, so here's what happens: you're a bass <laughs> player, you go on break. What I get are other bass players come up asking me about my rig. <laughs> the lead singers are <laughs> there, really surrounded funny. by women. I, I, I don't know player. if I buy that. I don't know if I buy that because you're a handsome guy. 
I know that our bass player, he was the guy that I hung with the most, and we were the guys that had fun. He had <laughs> It didn't hurt because I didn't have my driver's license. Somehow, he had a 63 aqua blue fastback Corvette. Yeah, so, so I remember piling in the back with, with this cute blonde girl. We were in Florida. But he was he was a nice looking guy like you are, and he got girls playing bass. So I know I know you got girls. You're just being humble. Well, I'll share two two stories with you that, that I think are we gonna are have to funny. cut this. No, no, no. We can keep them in because my I think my wife was there at both of those performances. She sure oh. knows. So one night we were playing in a club up in Phoenix, and it was a packed house, a big club. So there's probably three four hundred people there. And, uh, and the one thing I would call out is the difference is you were a cover band, so you guys would go in and, and entertain for the whole night. We were an original band, so we were only doing like a 40, 45-minute set amongst you know three or four bands playing that night. So as far as the money, so I guess if we put it in relative terms, maybe it's not, not as far off. But um, we were playing one night, and I'm, I'm in the middle of – I'm playing. It's not like between songs. It's not like some break or anything. I'm literally – we're in the middle of a song. I'm standing kind of towards the front of the stage. And this woman comes up, and she's standing right in front of me. She's just staring at me, and she's about three feet away from me because, you know, it's a club. So the stage isn't, you know, there's not a far separation or anything. The stage is only a few feet off the ground. And I'm thinking, is she trying to tell me something? Like, what's the issue? And all of a sudden, she puts her hand out, and she reaches up to me. Now, I'm playing bass. Like, I'm really, like, I can reach out and grab whatever it is is in her hand. So we, we did have a couple guys that gave us road support, <laughs> and one of them saw her. And so he kind of comes scooting up underneath me there. And, and takes the, the paper out of her hand and runs back off to the side of the stage. So after the song, I turn around and I go over to him. And I'm like, uh, what the heck was that? And he goes, he's just laughing. He goes, what's her name and her phone number? <laughs> and I said, well, there you my, go. I said, my wife's sitting two rows out. So let's just throw that away right now. <laughs> yeah. There you go, man. <laughs> and then uh, another time I was playing, this actually could have been really dangerous. And it was a, a Christmas show. And this particular uh, venue we were playing at the stage is set very high like four feet off the ground and i was over to the side of the stage and and i i decided that night it would be really fun to go rent this elf costume because it was christmas time and yeah. it had these big stockings and, and so i'm like well i'm just gonna go out in my stockings and i've got this elf thing which by the way bad idea because it's like four layers of felt and you've got all the lights oh, on yeah. the stage lights so i oh, was yeah i was melting yeah. in about 10 minutes and we had an hour set but I'm standing at the side of the stage, and I'm playing, and all of a sudden, I feel somebody come up and kind of grab my leg. And I, and I figured it was a friend or somebody who happened to be there in the audience that I must have known. And, and I look down, and it's some completely strange woman I've never met in my life. And not only has she kind of put her hands on my leg, she's tugging on it. And, and think not realizing, I think she was caught up in the moment. I don't think she thought, I'm going to try and hurt this guy. Because she was smiling and like kind of bouncing to the music. But she's tugging on it. She almost pulled me off stage, which would have ended oh, real poorly. I got a bass in my hands, fall four feet to the ground. Not, on her. Su- not surprised. Yeah. Not so, surprised, Tim. So we get, you, you know what it's like. You get, some, you get some people that get caught up in the moment. Uh, you know, I, I, I used to tell folks all the time, the thing about being a musician um, it's not that particularly any better looking or anything more to offer anybody. It's just that out of a crowded uh, venue or we play the celebrity theater. Actually, I can tell you some funny stories about that. But you go there and there's thousands of people there. They're there to see a show. They don't all know each other, but they all recognize the four of you who are on stage because they've been watching you for an hour. Yeah. So that's what makes them kind of gravitate towards you and you kind of stand out. So the celebrity theater, this is kind of a cute story. It's a theater in the round. 
And so the stage um, spins very, very slowly, but it turns 360. So that you're always at, at any given moment, you're playing, you know, two. So you're facing some part of the crowd. So it's in the round. In that particular band, I was always stage left. And in my mind, it's like, it's my job to own this part of the audience, right? I got to engage them. And not that we didn't run around a little bit, but at stage left was my, my setup. And uh, so we're playing there. And I look out, first song, and I see this, this uh, couple. And they've got a boy with them who's probably about 10 years old. And I see he looks, and they're about three rows back. And he's just mesmerized like he's staring at me so I make eye contact with him and I'm smiling at him he starts kind of smiling back and you know I'm playing away now keep in mind this the stage is turning but it turns really slow and I'd forgotten that the stage is turning so I'm doing my thing we we kill it we play the first song and so we're coming out you know second I think probably ran back by the drummer or something I'm coming back up to the front of the stage somewhere in the middle of the second song and I look for my little buddy and he's not there, and there's some empty seats. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so bad <laughs> that mom and dad took their kid and left. You know? I was mortified. I forgot that the stage was turning. So I was actually looking oh, at a completely oh, different yeah. part of the audience because by the end of that song, we'd come back around. i go, oh, there they are. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, God, what an idiot. you know. Um, but it, it is funny, the, the millions of things that are running through your head while you're up there playing guitar and you know entertaining people. I, sometimes I'm thinking about what we're going to have for dinner. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, Charlie, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on out of the ether and, and sharing all your history with us. Well, I hope hope you got something from it, and I hope your listeners enjoyed it. And I thank you for having me, and it's been a pleasure, and it's it's always fun to talk about one of my favorite subjects, if not my favorite subject, which is music. So thank you, Tim, for having me. And that concludes our conversation with Charlie Feldman. But it does not conclude this episode, because as promised, now, the world premiere of If Hell is Any Hotter by Charlie Feldman. Take a trip to